This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. One of the hardest situations in any family is when we're betrayed or hurt, sometimes very severely, by a relative. And sometimes when that happens, it seems like the relationship can never be repaired. But as we know, reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. So how can we find a way back to a family member who has hurt us? There is hope. Second Corinthians 5 puts it this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we're going to talk about this today with Rob Reno. He and his wife, Amy, are the founders of Visionary Family Ministries, and he's here today to talk about his latest book, Healing Family Relationships. Rob, great to have you here. How are you? Hey, Janet. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Thanks. Oh, it's so great to have you here. I think there are many, many people listening today who can identify with this. Even though every family has conflict, every family has hurts, how common do you think it is where there is really something that seems like an irreparable family situation between two relatives? Well, every family, Janet, is messed up. Uh, You put a bunch of sinful people together under the same roof you're going to get a lot of sin, and you're going to get a lot of problems. You know, Amy and I, we've been married 25 years. We have seven children. Not a day goes by where we don't have conflict, hurt of one kind or another. So the question is, is whether or not the Christian family learns how to navigate through that conflict and really to become an expert in forgiveness, or, like you just said, uh, things spiral out of control, so now we are estranged and angry and we're putting up boundaries and things are much more serious. Well, right. Now, you talk about, at the outset, the power of forgiveness when we're talking about healing family relationships. And this one, it, it should be very simple. We understand the Word of God says we should forgive 70 times 7, but in reality, many people find it difficult to forgive even once if they believe that the offense is so severe that it, you know, it would just be wrong to forgive somebody. But what is the importance of forgiveness just as a mindset going into trying to heal a family relationship? Well, like you said, some of the forgiveness ideas out there are pretty Sunday schooly, kind of pat answery. I experienced this um, biggest family conflict I ever had to face was my parents' divorce. I was 15 years old, and my dad traveled for business and had different relationships uh, with other women when he traveled. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back, and my parents got divorced, and I had so much hatred and bitterness and anger toward my dad for what he had done and all the damage he had done. And I had some, you know, I had some well-meaning Christian friends who just said, well, Rob, you need to forgive them. And certainly that's true, like you said, good biblical advice, but it felt very pat very superficial, like somehow 
you know, I've got these little light switches down in my heart somewhere, anger, bitterness, hatred, and resentment, and, and I just go down there and turn those off and give them to Jesus, and, and we're good to go. And I had to discover, and I'm really my youth pastor is the one who walked me through this, that forgiveness is not some magic formula, but it really is an intentional, biblical process where God can set us free from hatred, anger, and bitterness. Now, that was a six-year process for me with, with the Lord in my heart related to my dad, and that was totally separate from reconciliation, because God wants us to forgive the people that hurt us. In other words, be free of the hatred, anger, bitterness, and resentment, even if we don't end up reconciling with them. They may not want to reconcile with you for all sorts of different reasons. Well, that's a tricky one. And and I want to pick up the story with your dad again, because you have a great story about your dad toward the end of the book. But when we're talking about forgiveness, you brought up a really important point. There are people, for example, who say, well, I had a family member sexually abuse me. And now that family member is dead. Reconciliation is not even possible, but I still am struggling just with the forgiveness part. That That's a severe example. But in that case, how do you advise that Christian to forgive somebody when that person can't even sit in front of the abuser and work things through. Right. Well, what we do is we walk through some biblical principles. We talk about three steps of forgiveness and reconciliation, or three phases. Forgiveness with the will, forgiveness with the heart, and then reconciliation. Now, in the case that you just gave, reconciliation, humanly speaking, is impossible. So what is forgiveness with the will? Forgiveness with the will is the choice to forgive. Now, a lot of us, we can't even do this part because we just don't feel like it, right? Yeah. We're hurt and angry. The other person has not asked for forgiveness. Maybe the other person is continuing the bad behavior. So your feelings are not your friends on this first phase. Um, what we encourage people to do is get out a piece of paper that's just between you and the Lord. And as you think about, and again, you pick this extreme example, this tragic situation of an abuse, but uh, you, you get out a piece of paper up at the top, you write down, it hurt me when, dot, dot, dot. And you write down specific events that happened, specific things that were said, specific things that were done, specific things that were undone, maybe a lack of protection from another family member, things like that. And you walk through that list, and you got to, this is a prayer where you grit your teeth. You say, okay, God, I don't want to forgive my uncle or whoever did this. Uh, I don't want to forgive them. I don't feel like forgiving them, but I choose to forgive them for A, for B, for C. Now, this first step, is such a powerful step of obedience. And then you go into phase two, and phase two is a daily prayer. Okay, God, I've chosen to forgive my family member, but I still don't have any warm fuzzies, and I still have hatred, anger, and bitterness. So, God, I need you to change my heart. I do not want to hate someone, no matter what they did to me, because that hatred is robbing my life now. So I was six years in phase two, praying every day, God, heal my heart of anger, bitterness, and hatred toward my dad. But he did it. Uh, God set mm-hmm. my heart free. I, after that, I did not have any more anger and bitterness and hatred for me. It changed my life. Well, now what you're really talking about when you say that forgiveness first has to pass through the will, you're really talking about a moral decision. Would that be a fair way to put it? Because it's not a feeling at that point. Absolutely. Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's a, it's a commandment. And again, our feelings really get in the way because this is the last thing that we feel like doing. And we can forgive someone and not trust them again. We can forgive someone and not even like them again. You know, people say, well, I just don't have warm feelings for this person. Well, if they're a toxic, mean-spirited person, you're never going to have warm feelings for them. Yeah. We, we, we're never commanded to have warm feelings for people. We're commanded to love the people we don't have warm feelings for. But people get tangled up thinking that forgiveness means I have to have happy feelings for a person. That's a good distinction. So when you're talking about walking through forgiveness for your own father, 
what was the breakthrough point? How did you get to the point where you could forgive? I was seeing so much toxicity in my own life <laughs> from my anger and my bitterness. It wasn't hurting my dad, uh, but it was really hurting me. And I had enough caring friends, you know, tell me, Rob, look, you holding on to this, it's not hurting your dad. It's not getting back at him, but it's creating terrible consequences in your own life. So you've got a choice to make whether you want to have your dad's bad behavior be a ball and chain around your life or whether you want to follow these biblical steps and be intentional about it. See, one of the lies out there is that time heals all wounds, and that is absolutely not true. You get a big chop on your arm, and you say, well, I'm going to give that time. No, you're going to get infected. You're going to lose your arm. Now, what is true is that God can heal all wounds over time. That's a true statement. But in a lot of our Christian families, we just have a sort of a sweep-it-under-the-rug approach. I'm I'm not going to deal with that. Even with the Lord, I'm just going to hope these bad feelings go away, and that's a recipe for disaster. Well, that's why honesty is so important. I think even when you're assessing your own life, because what you're saying there, when you're you're looking at your own life, you're mad at your father. Your father has wronged you and wronged your family. But what you saw, because of what you said your friends pointed out in you and people you trusted, you said, but now it's affecting me. Isn't that kind of like the line that, you know, it's kind of like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You're the one who's really suffering. If your father didn't care, then what good does your anger and bitterness do? Yeah, that's exactly right. I heard a seminar from a man named Jerry Root, and he was talking about the scripture you brought up at the beginning where Jesus commands us to forgive 70 times 7, and he talked about, he used the illustration, he says, if you've got rats in your house, you you don't eat the rat poisoning, okay? Yeah. Uh, If you eat the rat poisoning, it's going to hurt you, and he said, you know, how many times in your life should you say no to eating rat poisoning? 70 times 7, right? That is a lifestyle decision that God does not want his people filled with anger, bitterness, and resentment. Very good. Rob Reno with us. The book is Healing Family Relationships. We'll go to a break and we'll come right back on Janet Meffer Today. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 60 million babies' lives have been taken through abortion, and there are millions of additional preborn babies whose lives are still at risk. But the Ministry of Preborn stands in the gap with young moms in crisis, helping them to choose life. When I saw my baby for the first time on an ultrasound, I just felt so shocked and so surprised. I was just so scared. After learning all my options, I chose life. It was important for me to make the right choice. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasound sounds in the United States. They're the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, helping moms to make the choice of life. And you can help. One ultrasound is just $28. Would you join with Preborn in the cause for life? To donate, call now 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to have with us Rob Reno. His book is called Healing Family Relationships, A Guide to Peace and Reconciliation. And this is some very good advice. I think probably, well, maybe 100% of the people who are listening today, Rob, have heard uh, this this. A message that you're going to be bringing today and thought, oh, I can think of somebody in my family and a relationship that I need healed. So I really need to listen to this. When we were talking about forgiveness, that's a really important thing that it's a willful decision before you feel it, but it's a necessary step. What about prayer? How do you pray for somebody who may have just severely wounded you or severely wronged you in your family? Sometimes when you don't even feel like praying for the person. Boy, that's a excruciating step, and what a difficult teaching from Jesus, right? Do you remember, he says, you know, pray for those who mistreat you. Yes. Pray for those who persecute you. I mean, that's that's awful Sunday schooly right there, how difficult it is <laughs> to do that. Um, but what a powerful thing that, that you can do if you choose to be obedient to that. And remember, I think sometimes people think that their prayers have to sound very spiritual, kind of like maybe they hear somebody praying in church or something like that. If you're listening and you, the last thing in the world you could possibly imagine doing is praying for God to bless a family member who has hurt you or change the heart of a family member that's hurt you or to pray for reconciliation in a relationship that you, you really don't even want reconciliation. Well, start your prayer with that. You can say, God, I think praying like this is ridiculous. Hmm. This is the last thing in the world I want to do to pray for this person. You know how much they've hurt me. Why would I ever pray for them? But fine, you want me to pray for them? I'll pray for them. Okay, God, I want you to bless them. I want you to change their heart, soften their heart, draw them to Christ, heal our relationship. That, well, I didn't like praying that, God, but you said do it, so I did it. I, I think that's a pretty honest prayer. I actually think God likes that sort of honesty. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's heartfelt. It's really something that's honest because if you came to the Lord and you were just going through the motions of trying to say something that you thought you should say, but you didn't really mean it, then how do you really have that honest moment where you can begin to let the Lord work in your heart and change your heart as as you are putting all of that on the table? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, the other uh, prayer challenge that I would give to folks, and this is also a really difficult one. I, I struggle with it. You know, when Amy and I are uh, having a fight or having a conflict, you know, my my gut sense is that this conflict's all her fault, right? 100% Amy, 0% Rob, and that's why we're fighting, obviously. Well, needless to say, there's hardly ever any family conflicts that are 100-0, and you remember Jesus' teaching. He says you're trying to get the speck out of your brother's eye while you've got the log in your own eye. 
And so one of the really powerful prayer strategies for family healing is, okay, God, would you show me whatever I've done to hurt this relationship? Now, maybe you're right. Maybe it's 99 to 1, the other person's fault or whatever. But God, would you show me the one or whatever the number is? And that's, you know, Jesus' point is not, you know, who's more at fault. Jesus' point is let's turn our attention to what we've done to contribute to the brokenness, not just obsess about what the other person's done. That's a really good point. And, you know, along with that, I was thinking about your chapter on healing through spiritual warfare. And something that you say in this chapter is that there are times when we have to seek peace by fighting. And you're referring to fighting against the spiritual forces of wickedness, you know, as Ephesians 6 talks about. How does that work out? I mean, that is spot on, I think, because we need to understand that ultimately our war is not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians says. But we understand that we have an enemy who's at work. How do you do that when you're talking about healing through spiritual warfare? What does that entail? Well, let me give you one example that my mom had my brother and I do in regards to fighting for our family. Our whole family tree has been affected by divorce. My father divorced four times. My mother divorced two times. Mm. We have divorce in the extended family. And my mom was the first Christian in our family tree. And so my brother and I were the first two Christian men in our family tree. And she had my brother and I do some spiritual battle in this area of, of generational sin. And what we did is we followed an Old Testament pattern. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah comes to God, and he repents on behalf of the people for their idolatry. Hmm. Now, he had not been an idol worshiper, but he was a representative for the people. And so one of the things my brother and I did with my mom is we got our knees and we said, God, we come to you as representatives of this family system that is in bondage to unbiblical divorce. Hmm. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would break that generational pattern. Exodus 24 talks about generational patterns in our family. Would you break this generational pattern in our lives? Bless us with lifelong Christian marriages. Bless all of our children with lifelong Christian marriages and begin a new generational pattern with us. That's neat. So the cycle would end with you. That was really the objective. That's the prayer. But but there's work that has to be done in the spiritual realm. Just good intentions and hoping things change isn't doing that work in the spiritual realm. You actually have to pray in battle. Well, you do. And I was thinking, for example, there are a lot of Christians who have family members, for example, with whom they have a very difficult relationship. And part of it is that you have one Christian and maybe one relative who hates God. That's where this would also come into play, would it not? Absolutely. And asking for God in that circumstance, if you've got a family member that doesn't know the Lord, which means that they are dead in their sins, and they're probably acting in accordance with their nature. And we want to ask for God to give us a heart of compassion for them. That's Christ's attitude toward the lost. Now, there's judgment in that person's life for their behavior and their consequences, and I'm not saying that you draw close to a toxic person or an abusive person, but if you've got anybody in your family that doesn't know Christ, praying daily, God, give me your heart of compassion for this person, and that give me a a courage that any opportunity that you would give me to share the gospel, I'm going to take it. Well, that's great. Now, with your own dad, you tell a story toward the end of his life, which is such an encouraging story. Would you talk a little bit about that and how your mom came back into his life really, you know, at a very critical time? Yeah, my dad was diagnosed with advanced cancer at the age of 90, only had a few weeks uh, left to live. Um, Our kids 
our, four of our children at that time um, sent in some cards with John 3.16 and the gospel message. And it was my mom and her, she got remarried after their divorce, my mom and her husband that went to visit my dad in the hospital. <laughs> and my stepdad said to my father, Bill, we want to be in heaven with you. And he said, bring me those cards, these cards that the grandkids had written with mm-hmm. John 3.16 and Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. And they read the cards, and my mom shared the gospel with them again for the 1,500th time, <laughs> and said, Bill, are you ready to repent and trust Christ? And he said, I am. Uh. And so he prayed to receive Jesus with his fourth wife and her husband, and um, we then drove out to Connecticut, had three unbelievable days with my dad. He asked forgiveness for the things that he had done. My dad's conversion, he was a brand new person. It's the biggest miracle I've mm-hmm. ever seen in my whole life. And I know for some of you, you've been praying for forever, right? For God to work a miracle in a family member's life. Let me just tell you, if God can save my dad, he can save whoever you've got. Whoever you're praying for is easy, cheesy, lemon squeezy compared to my dad. So don't, don't give up praying and don't stop sharing the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Well, now I'm curious, Rob, because when you had somebody who was so adamantly opposed to the Bible for so long and adamantly opposed to Christianity, did you have any signs before the point where he said, yes, I want to pray to trust Christ as my Savior and Lord? Did you have any indication that he was softening up until then, or did it just kind of hit out of the blue like that? There, there were some indications along the way. I think one of them that comes to mind, he was 80 years old and we were out to breakfast, um, his mother died in childbirth with him uh, in 1918. She actually had the, the Spanish flu. And I asked him when we were out to breakfast, I said, Dad, I wonder if you're angry with God for letting your mom die when you were born. Oh, wow. And half the sentence was out of my mouth and a tear came down his cheek. And he wiped it away and wanted to change the, the subject. But it was such an indication to me. Here's this man, 80 years old still emotionally hemorrhaging from the loss of his mother. And there were some times along the way where um, the the veneer, the the hard shell came down for just a few moments and you could see his pain and you could see his his suffering and and his loneliness. Um, But ultimately, the the arm of the Lord is not too short to reach him. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and something else you talk about in the book, you talk about compassion, you talk about patience, all of which are important. And that story, I think, highlights it a bit because there can be times when you're having conflict with somebody in your family and there's something deeper going on that is behind perhaps the attitude of the person in your family that's being directed at you for whatever reason. Maybe that's a further argument for patience, for compassion, and for continual prayer for somebody who may seem rock hard and completely unlikely to ever become a Christian. That that really does give people hope to say, okay, maybe there's something deeper going on and the Lord has to deal with that in his life to get him to the point where he'll come to know the Lord. Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I grow impatient with the Lord's sanctification schedule of the people around me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, he can take his time with me, but <laughs> what is he doing, right, letting, letting everybody else wallow in all their, all their struggles? Um, so there definitely is a, 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 one of the phrases that I use in the book is that people are not uh, sanctified or led to the Lord by our Holy Spirit, but by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So an attitude of uh, humility and prayer and continued 
just seeking the Lord God that if things are going to change in our family, it's going to change because of your power and your strength. Well, that's right. And ultimately, reconciliation is the goal. And, and what a gift that God gave to you. You were able to reconcile with your dad then before he passed. Yeah. Amen. And he asked for forgiveness. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I had forgiven him 20 years before that he had asked, but but we could not be reconciled in in relationship until he asked for the gift there it and is. then the gift could be given. Yeah, what an important point. And a great book, Healing Family Relationships. Rob Reno, who's been so kind to be with us. Visionaryfam.com is the website. And Rob, thank you so much for being here. It was just a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll be back on Janet Matt for today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. I want to go back to this subject of masks. Well, COVID-19 measures in general, because there was a piece in Christianity Today that really got my dander up. I'm going to get into that in a moment. But now a top federal health official you might have heard is issuing a dire warning. This is via CNN. Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Uh, says that you have to follow recommended coronavirus measures or risk having the worst fall in U.S. public health history. That's what we need, more panic. More panic, because that will really help us. I want to play a little bit, though, from this CNN report, because I have some things to say about it. Listen first to cut one. The world has now hit a sad milestone. 20 million confirmed coronavirus cases. More than half of those come from just three countries, Brazil, the United States, and India while Russia, South Africa, Colombia, and Mexico are hot on their heels. I know many of you are grieving and that this is a difficult moment for the world. Amidst the mammoth failures, even the success stories show how tough the virus is to control. New Zealand went 102 days without a single locally transmitted case of the virus until now. We have four cases all in one household. More than one workplace, however, is involved. The Prime Minister has ordered a three-day lockdown in Auckland, closing schools, non-essential shops and restaurants. Meanwhile, students are returning to school in Germany, where masks are mandatory in some states. Today, not a single child has forgotten his or her mask, all of which seems to show that the situation is returning to normal. Okay, the situation is returning to normal, but look at the statistics on mask wearing, look at the statistics on lockdowns, and you cannot make a solid case that these things are better for the cultures where these things were invoked. And I think all you need to do is look at places like Hawaii, for example. Hawaii has the strictest mask mandate in the country, and yet now their cases are surging. So if masks are really working, why in the world are the cases surging? There, there are actually some reasons for this. But then what about Sweden? This is something that CNN gets into only slightly. Cut to. But in Sweden, face coverings are few and far between. 
Despite World Health Organization guidance to wear them, Sweden's government has no national mandate to wear them anywhere. I think uh, Swedish people are uh, taking big responsibilities. So if you're sick, we stay at home. And if you're not, we can be outside. Meanwhile, in Africa, experts fear that low testing rates may be masking the true scale of the outbreak. That's interesting, isn't it? They don't tell you anything about Sweden being one of the best countries right now as far as the COVID-19 outbreak is going and death rates and so forth. You can look at all that data, but it's interesting how they just mentioned they're not having any sort of mask mandates in Sweden, and then they tell you nothing about the results. Does that sound like fake news to you? It does to me because it would be relevant. If you really were trying to do some good reporting on this, it would be relevant to talk about the data on mask mandates and lockdowns versus those who aren't imposing those and compare the case rates and compare the death rates. Doesn't that seem like something you would find useful in your news coverage? I know it would be useful for me. Uh, This is important, and I'll tell you why. I want to talk about this Christianity Today story. Here's the headline. Christian colleges, God wants you to wear a mask to class. I know they're trying to be cute. I don't think anybody has said God wants you to wear a mask to class, but almost, almost at Christian colleges across the country, incoming students pledged to comply with biblical standards for belief and behavior. This year, the appeals to love your neighbor and advance God's mission have been applied to public health guidelines, too. As schools ask students to promise to disinfect their dorm rooms, limit social interactions, and wear masks to class. While all colleges reopening for in-person classes have issued new policies around the coronavirus, and several Ivy League institutions have similarly developed social contracts, yeah, social contracts, the standard health precautions take on a spiritual significance at evangelical schools. The now familiar instructions are framed by Christian values and lines from scripture lines. And they quote Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, who says, we're going to return in a way that Christians understand, but the secular world does not. We're going to return in a covenant together. This is a document. It's a covenant that they have on campus, a document that needs to be signed by faculty, staff, and students who are returning to the Louisville campus. Most evangelical schools list the common coronavirus do's and don'ts, things like hand washing, social distancing, etc. But unlike the straightforward recommendations coming from government officials or medical professionals, the college's policies say that complying is a Christian obligation. Now, let me just pause here and say that it is important just as a human being that if you're sick, you try not to cough on people. You try not to spread any known disease to somebody who might be healthy who's coming near you. If I have the flu, I will tell friends, don't come over. I have the flu and they stay home. That's just a human thing that most people will do, right? You don't want to get somebody else sick. It doesn't have to be a Christian or a non-Christian thing because a lot of non-Christians do that as well. So why do you have to continually invoke the love your neighbor directive? Because I have heard this thing over and over and over and over again. Love your neighbor, love your neighbor. We do love our neighbors. This is the second greatest commandment in scripture. This is what the Lord wants us to do. And the first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. Both both of those commands are imperative and they are wonderful and they're important. But why do you have to spiritualize medical guidelines? 
because you have Christians who don't agree with them and you have Christians who don't agree with some of these measures precisely for the reasons that I have been outlining for the last several months. In the hands of some of these leftist government tyrants, we are being given emergency directives that are no longer emergencies, do not go along with the millions we were promised, would die unless we all locked down. And now we're just weaponizing some of these directives for political purposes. And it's just completely obvious. Take California, for example. And my discussions, as you've heard, with Robert Tyler, the Pastor McCoy's attorney, and Harmeet Dillon talking about the parents who are suing the schools in California and some of those other pastors who are suing the states over issues regarding coronavirus and shutting down churches and you can't even meet in the parking lot. Remember that? That wasn't too long ago, you know. You can't even have drive-in services. We're going to cite you. We're going to fine you. We're going to send you to jail. And thankfully, a lot of these Christian attorneys stepped up and they got justice. But we haven't always gotten justice. This is what bothers me. When you start to cloak some of these blatantly political maneuvers in Scripture, what you're basically saying is not a Romans 13 argument. What you're saying is we're leftists too, so do what you're told, Christians. Look, I am not saying that the Christian colleges can't do this. I want to be perfectly clear about this. If you go to a Christian college and the Christian college says, socially distance, have hybrid classes, do some stuff online, you got to you know, put your hand sanitizer on before coming in the building, all these kinds of things, they have the right to do this. They do. It's their campus. You're going there. You need to comply with the rules of your campus. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is trying to invoke scripture as the reason. The only reason that we ought to be abiding by medical rules is if medicine dictates it. In other words, if I have a broken leg and then you tell me I have to wear a mask around people because I might spread my broken leg to people and it's a love your neighbor directive, I would look at you as if you lost your mind, which by the way, you would have because how in the world am I going to spread a broken leg to you by my coughing? I'm not. Everybody knows that. And if you say love your neighbor, that doesn't make it any stronger or any weaker, by, that, by, by the way. What, what that says is you're trying to weaponize scripture to get me to do something that is against reason and it's against thinking. And isn't the greatest commandment a commandment to love the Lord your God with your mind as well as with your heart, soul, and strength? You love the Lord your God with your mind. We see these double standards. And the problem is a lot of these people in evangelicalism, these left-leaning evangelical leaders are making these statements while simultaneously closing their churches down for the rest of the year and going on Black Lives Matter marches in the streets like David Platt and some of these other people from the Gospel Coalition like Tabidi Anyebwile were involved in in Washington, D.C. at a time when churches were not allowed to meet. Do you not think we see the double standard? You want your churches closed, but you, you want to be out in the streets? Is this really about coronavirus? We'll come back. Stay with us.
Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has plan for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. And that ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. The cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture, along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. All right. Christianity Today reports that Christian colleges want you to sign a covenant, want you to make a pandemic promise that you'll do all kinds of things to love your neighbor in a COVID-19 age. And they even point out that in some cases, the spiritual and moral framing justify pandemic precautions that go beyond the norm. For example, in many cases, schools are explicitly requiring students to get a flu shot. How is that going to stop COVID-19? How is that? What does it have to do with the pandemic? Nothing. I mean, we're talking about a respiratory illness. But by the way, I think probably many, many people listening to me right now, and I could say the same thing, can give you personal testimonies that would indicate a flu shot doesn't always work. Uh, that's kind of a known thing. The flu shot doesn't always work because the flu shot is put together with the best guesstimates that they have pertaining to the flu from last season. And so they try to get the right uh, elements in there and the right, you know, the right concoction to make sure that you're inoculated against this year's flu. But it's always a guessing game. And that's why it doesn't always cover anybody who gets a flu shot. It's not 100% guaranteed. But getting a flu shot because there's COVID? Well, we don't want you to get flu. Again, how can we not look at this and say requiring flu shots, which has never been the case before, It's always been optional. Requiring flu shots, how can we see this as anything but a stair step toward requiring COVID-19 shots for a a, a disease that is not the Black Plague? It, It has killed too many people. I agree, but so has the flu. This is not the Black Plague. This is not the end of the world. We haven't seen millions drop dead of COVID-19. It's mainly elderly people and people with underlying health conditions, and it's tragic, and it's terrible. But 
you know, life is a risk also. I saw a story about all of these major restaurant chains that are in great danger of going under now. Names you know. What, what, how many businesses are we going to allow to go under because we're all terrified of a virus that has killed 0.03% of the population who got it? For that number, you're willing to just lock down forever and don your mask? So let's talk about masks. Listen to this. This is out of Fox 35 Orlando out of Gainesville. Researchers at the University of Florida have found particles of coronavirus in aerosols collected, contributing to findings that the virus could be airborne. According to the New York Times, a research team at the University of Florida successfully isolated the live virus from aerosols collected at a distance of 7 to 16 feet from patients hospitalized with COVID-19. This is farther, obviously, than the six feet recommended in social distancing guidelines. But it wasn't clear if the amount of the virus recovered was enough to cause infection. Droplets can be damaged. We don't know. There's another study, though, out of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And they found genetic material from the virus that causes COVID-19 in air samples from both inside and outside confirmed coronavirus patients' rooms. Researchers say these findings offered limited evidence that some potential for airborne transmission exists. Why does this matter? Because aerosols are not going to be stopped by masks. And apparently aerosols also will not be stopped if it is the case that this comes out to be True. And this is just preliminary information. I'm not hanging my hat on this. But if this comes to pass, what good is six feet apart? You might you might as well invoke 14 feet limits or if it's outside the room, maybe 25 foot limits. The masks aren't going to help you if it's aerosol induced. So why are we wearing masks? And masks don't work for what we know now about coughing and sneezing from COVID-19 patients. In fact, let's go back to something that the very spokeswoman for the World Health Organization said on a British TV program. This was back in February. Nick Ferrari at Leading Britain's Conversation was interviewing Dr. Margaret Harris, spokeswoman from the World Health Organization, asking, should we be wearing masks? Listen to cut three. Is it wise or is it pointless to wear a face mask? Uh, We don't recommend wearing a face mask unless you are coughing or sneezing a lot. And uh, coughing or sneezing, I'm talking about any respiratory infection. And people people misunderstand the face mask. They think the face mask is about protecting themselves. It's actually about protecting others if you are producing a lot of respiratory uh, droplets, (laughs) to put it gently. (laughs) And... uh, So essentially, and one of the risks with the face mask is people struggle to wear them for long. They're very uncomfortable and they tend to touch them a lot. And if you touch the front of your face mask and it's wet, whatever respiratory bugs you've coughed out onto your face mask uh, will go onto your hand and then you will put it onto other surfaces. So no, we say yes is an appropriate time to wear a face mask, but, but generally no, it's not necessary. That's the World Health Organization. Might I just say again, that's the World Health Organization spokeswoman. Does that matter to anybody or am I not loving my neighbor unless I disobey the spokeswoman from the World Health Organization? This is what I'm talking about. Brett McCracken over at the Gospel Coalition ran an article in early July called Four Reasons to Wear a Mask Even If You Hate It. What was number one reason? Love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. 
He says, I'm frustrated that the science on masks has been inconsistent. It's maddening that everyone from the U.S. Surgeon General to the CDC and the World Health Organization have flip-flopped on their mask guidance. Not surprising, but consensus is emerging that wearing masks does slow the virus's spread and thus can save lives. That's actually not true, Brett. That's not true. Dr. Andrew Boston has been on the show a number of times, an epidemiologist and a clinical trialist from Brown University. He's going through the data every single day on COVID-19 and has broken down all these studies that have done been done that show actually masks don't work. Those flimsy surgical masks, those don't work. There was a story just this week that talked about the bandanas. Those don't work. Now, the N95 respirators are a different matter. But again, go back to what the WHO said back in February. Unless you have symptoms, it's not going to matter. You shouldn't be wearing a flimsy surgical mask to protect yourself from COVID-19. You should only be covering up if you're sick. That's what they said. And now it's about social control, if I can say it that way. It's about making sure that you make people feel better. Well, if that's the reason that we're wearing masks in mass across the United States, then we're all a bunch of dopes because you shouldn't be doing something just to make people feel better. You should be doing things because they make medical sense. And I don't see the evidence from the CDC or the WHO or anything more than them saying, yeah, you probably should wear a mask. What, you probably should? Well, it couldn't hurt. You know, people feel better. Even Dr. Fauci said that. You know, it makes people feel better if you've got a mask. Really? Because where I live, we have a lot of people who are bitterly angry over wearing masks. It's 100 degrees in Texas. People don't want to be putting these face masks on them. I mean, on themselves or anybody else. It's just, it's a pain in the neck and it doesn't work and we're hot. And why are we doing this again? But, you know, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Isn't it funny, though? The same people in evangelicalism who are saying wear a mask in order to love your neighbor are the same people who are looking at the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and minimizing that one. Why do I say that? I'm saying that because these are the people who will not get in line with the pastors who say we must open our churches. We must get back to not forsaking the assembling together that God commands in the book of Hebrews. We need each other. People have spiritual needs during this pandemic that are even greater needs than physical needs. The church needs to be open if abortion clinics and liquor stores can be open and if BLM protesters and Antifa can be out in the streets, then why can't we be open? open. We will socially distance. We will wash our hands. We will be responsible. But there's no reason to tell people in churches that they can't exercise their First Amendment rights. And what happens? What happens? Well, pretty much you can take the letter of the political party and predict who will give you freedom and who will be tyrannical about it. And it's pretty much been true down the line. Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, has gotten on board and given advice to various states. The churches are essential, and they do have rights, and they do have rights under the Constitution of the United States. And some states have been very respectful of that, like in the state of Texas and some others. State like California, forget it. Forget it. You take it to court, you can't even win in some of these cases. No, 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 no. Broad authority. We have broad authority to shut you down going into an election. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't mean to say that. Love your neighbor. We should love our neighbors, but we also have to love the Lord our God with our minds, our minds. And when we see some of these mandates, yes, you can wear a mask. I think if you're sick, you should stay home. 
And if you want to wear a mask when you're sick, you should. I'm not trying to be ridiculous here. What I'm saying is you don't have to take scripture and use it in such a way that that's the way you're going to get people to comply rather than being reasonable and sane from the annals of medicine or science. There's a really good reason why you should be doing this while ignoring all of the evidence to the contrary and just using the Bible as a way to tell people get in line or else and then closing their churches down for the rest of the year. I think they're hypocrites and I don't I just I think it's ridiculous and I think we need to be Christians who think especially during times like these. We got to go. Thanks a lot for being with us here at Janet Meffer today. God bless you. We'll see you next time. <music>